If you have a Bible uh, this evening, we turn in Romans in chapter 1 and looking together at the verses we read, 16 and 17. And this evening we're thinking of the righteousness of God. And it's an interesting time to be thinking about this theme in our church and in our society because, as you know, the Commons has decided to investigate the, the Prime Minister and his claims. And, and we this evening and, and in the subsequent weeks will be thinking about this idea of being declared righteous. The, the committee is, is looking into the, this detail of do we have someone who is claiming to be righteous and is righteous? Or do we have someone in our Prime Minister who is claiming to be righteous but is guilty of what he professes not to have done? And so that there is this challenge, there is this issue which will be headlining the media for days and weeks to come and as the world is thinking of this matter, we'll be thinking of a parallel idea, a more personal and related to our life and to our home of being justified, of being declared righteous. And the big difference between this case within our nation and this case within our own life is this incredible gulf between what the committee will decide and what God in heaven has declared. The committee might conclude that our Prime Minister is guilty but professes to be righteous. Or it might conclude that the Prime Minister is righteous and declares himself to be righteous. But our theme, this gospel that we're studying, is about God in heaven declaring the guilty to be righteous. If the committee does that, we'll say it's wrong. But when God does this, we praise his name. And how can he do this? It's because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and substitute and federal head. And so we come uh, this evening to study again uh, this section. And I remember uh, a, a famous preacher whose sermons I was listening to uh, years ago. And uh, he said that he dwelt on this passage in a big church in, in Glasgow <clears throat> uh, there. And uh, he dwelt on this uh, passage for, for a number of weeks. And, and one congregant uh, collared him at the door and, and, and said, Are you dwelling on verses 16 and 17? Because you're afraid of going further into chapter 1 where it gets very dark and murky. And he responded uh, to that, that criticism by, by the point we've been making that such is the density 
and importance of these two verses is setting the tone and the theme for the rest of the book that they require us to slow down and understand the key terms which are found here. Those of you who have the penchant for golf uh, know the importance of the proper swing. Your ball is going to find all kinds of branches, bushes, ponds and trees if your swing is not working as it should. And this is our idea here, that if we understand uh, that the statements in, in this compressed section then we should be able to steer our way accurately through this tremendous uh, book of Romans. All commentators, they they include appendices uh, to their comments on these verses. Such is the density of the terms that that they take extra pages to to spell out the, the nature and to define with greater clarity their assertions and conclusions on the phrases in these incredible verses before us this evening. And we we are progressing through this introduction. We have considered the greeting in verses 1 to 7, the second part, that prayer that Paul had to go to Rome, which had not yet been answered in his life. And now this theme of this book that he's announcing in verses 16 and in 17. And in this 17th verse that we come to this evening, we're we're considering the key phrase here, the righteousness of God. And we want to think this evening of God's righteousness recognized, God's righteousness revealed, and God's righteousness received. God's righteousness recognized. We've been following the logic of these two verses, haven't we? This repetition of the same Greek word, gar, translated in the English, for. For, I am not ashamed. He's been eager to go to Rome to preach there. For, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? We've followed his argument. For it is the power of God to salvation. And now we're asking, how is the gospel the power of God to salvation? What's in that gospel? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And why is that important, Paul? Why is that important? For, he says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed against human sinfulness. And so we're coming in Paul's logical assertion here to this statement which brings us to the very essence of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. How is that then, Paul? What's in this gospel For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. If we want a planetary example, we're we're at the sun here. This is the core and everything else will be revolving around this 17th verse. We're right at the very essence of what the gospel is as defined by scripture. So what is it then? What is 
the righteousness of God. Now, as you can imagine, <laughs> there are a range of answers to this, this question. And there's three main answers given by evangelical commentators. Some assert it's the attribute of God. Some assert it's the action of God. Some assert it's the announcement of God. And I would argue that the first two are latent here, but the third is dominant. The first, the attribute of God. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we accept that. God's characteristic of righteousness is seen in the gospel. We see it in the perfect life of Christ. We see it in God judging Christ for our sins. We see it in God raising Jesus from the dead, having paid the price of sin in the gospel. This attribute of God, the righteousness of God, is revealed. But that's not all, is it? The action of God. And this is tied into Old Testament assertions to God coming in salvation. And often in the prophets and in the Psalms, uh, these two ideas of righteousness and salvation are, are intertwined. That God saves, but he saves in a righteous way. He doesn't compromise his moral character. He brings salvation to his people, but he does it within the parameters of his righteousness. And so in Psalm 98, which we'll sing, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. And in Hebrew parallelism, righteousness and salvation are conjoined and collapse into one another. God's salvation is a righteous salvation. But while we recognize that those ideas are found in this phrase, the righteousness of God, they are not the main idea. The main idea is this announcement by God. This legal idea, this forensic action, this imputation of the righteousness which God has created in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. And the moment we believe God donates it to our life, our character, our account, the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Frank Thielman explains it this way. A positive verdict that God renders in a judicial sense and therefore a righteous status he gives people. Thomas Schreiner similarly explains that it is a forensic term signifying that people who are still sinners stand as not guilty before God because of the gift 
of God's righteousness. This is the primary meaning. This is the essence of the gospel. The righteousness of God. Donated, communicated, applied, imputed to the sinner who believes. I give four reasons for supporting this interpretation of this crucial phrase in Romans. In the 17th verse, first of all, the righteousness of God is linked to faith. The sinner believes in Jesus and God's righteousness is imputed to the sinner. God remains righteous. His actions remain righteous whether we believe that he is righteous or not. But when a sinner believes in Jesus, the righteousness of God is donated to them. In chapter 4 of Romans, secondly, we'll come across this phrase, imputed. Again and again in Abraham's case, in David's case, in the case of anyone who believes in Jesus, Paul uses the phrase reckoned, imputed, credited. And This is more than the moral attribute of God. This is this donation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to the sinner who believes. Chapter 5 will discover that it's described there as a gift of God. This is something passed from heaven to earth, from God and Jesus to the sinner. This gift, this donation, this free righteousness, free to us, but costly to Jesus Christ. And so we're to think of a legal term, an imputation, something credited, something that comes to belong to you. There's Mary Brown. She's 57. She's female. She's British and she is righteous in the sight of God. It's something which is imputed to the sinner who believes. Jesus talked about it, didn't he, and illustrated it in that great parable in Luke 18 of the tax collector and the Pharisee at the temple the Pharisee praying that we call this, uh, the, the tax collector praying what we call the sinner's prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified, righteous in the sight of God. The righteousness of God recognized. Think secondly in this compressed uh, verse of the righteousness of God revealed and, and what is sterling, what is gripping, what is, is tremendous, and, and we would understand uh, that the use of this is this word revealed, uh, meaning uh, to unveil, 
Something that is phenomenal. Something that is cataclysmic. Something that is mind-blowing. Last year, eh, Prince William and Prince Harry down in Kensington, eh, they unveiled that statute eh, of their mother. There was clapping and there was amazement and there was joy. Something special. Something outstanding. Something momentous was unveiled. And it's this idea that the apostle has here, that that the, the righteousness of God in the gospel is unveiled. As the gospel is shared with someone who's never heard it for the first time, this incredible transformation which God in his grace can affect to anyone, to everyone who believes, is unveiled. As the gospel is preached, as the gospel is read, This righteousness of God imputed by grace in Christ through faith is made known to the reader, to the hearer. It's revealed the momentousness of it, the greatness of it. There's a word that's used of the coming of Jesus Christ from the heavens at the last day. What an unveiling that will be. What a revealing that will be of the glorious Son of God with the armies of angels from heaven. What a moment. And Paul uses that same word here. The righteousness of God is revealed. That you, that I, Sinners in thought, word and deed can be made righteous before the throne of the holy God. What a momentous thing this is. And the momentousness of it was experienced one day in Martin Luther's life, wasn't it? He voluntarily went into a monastery. His gifts and intellectual ability was recognized He was sent into the University of Wittenberg to teach the Bible in God's providence. And he was teaching the Psalms, struggling, searching, longing for peace, for forgiveness, for life. Then he started to expound Romans. He was tortured. He was wrestling with this phrase in verse 17, the righteousness of God. Listen to how he puts it. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through Open doors into paradise. The righteousness of God was revealed. It's momentousness. And in these moments, is it being revealed to us? Are we tasting it? Are we grasping it? Are we being thrilled by it? That you and I, unworthy though we are, can be declared righteous by the Holy God through Christ. By faith. The righteousness of God recognized. The righteousness of God revealed. And thirdly then, the righteousness of God 
received. And how do we get this, this righteousness? And, and the, the verse, this thematic verse, this summary of the, this statement and, and the, the message of Romans it concludes with this assertion. It doesn't leave us hanging. It sets it out for us. And it makes it plain. Whatever the phrases I'll mean and we'll come to wrestle with those just in a moment. The clear message of the final phrases is it's by faith. This righteousness of God, it's not bought, it's not inherited, it's not earned. It's by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ, the guilty soul trusting in the perfect Savior, in that moment, in that split second, in that blink of the eye. God declares the sinner righteous. But what do the phrases mean? From faith to faith. And there's a million suggestions for this. Is there some progression intended here? We use the phrase from strength to strength. And by that phrase, we do intend a progression. The person's getting stronger. Oh, they, 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 they've gone to university. They're going from strength to strength. They, they're advancing. They're, they're settling in well. They're, they're taking to their studies. And are we to apply that kind of idea to this phrase from faith to faith as in the, the original and, and in the King James? Faith to faith. So is there a progression here? For example, some suggest from Old Testament faith to New Testament faith. From the faith of the Jews, others suggest to the faith of the Gentiles. I prefer the suggestion that it's emphasizing it's only by faith. It's always by faith. It's ever by faith. There's no moving on from faith. There's no addition to faith. There's nothing we contribute. It's from faith to faith faith. I think the quotation from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 supports us. This is a a strange place to go, isn't it? Habakkuk, strange to us, but but familiar to the the first century Jews and and, and Christians. We we find this quotation in three places, Hebrews 10, Galatians 3, and here in in Romans uh, chapter 1. One rabbi, in fact, Uh, looked at the the 613 Old Testament commandments uh, and his position was that those commandments can be reduced to one, this one. The just shall live by faith. But what's its meaning? The, The difficulty you will grasp is that in the three places it's quoted in the New Testament, it's translated in three different ways. But Douglas Moo cuts through all the complexities that surround this quotation to make the point that faith in God and his word is being emphasized. There's Habakkuk, and, and what a man he is. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's complaining about the, the apostasy among the church in the Old Testament. And God says to him, yes, Habakkuk, I see that. And I am going to judge 
the people of Judea. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they will punish and take them away exile. Habakkuk says, what? The people of Babylon, they're far worse than the Jewish people. God says to Habakkuk, but I'll also deal with them. Just you wait. Just you trust. The just shall live by faith in me, in my purposes, in my word. And we get how Paul quotes this now, or why he quotes this now. Here we are, wandering, doubting, Unworthy, confused, bamboozled. Is this true? Is this real? Has this declaration really happened in my experience? And we're pointing to Habakkuk with all his confusion. And the world seemed to be at odds at what God was doing. God said to Habakkuk and through him says to us, The righteous shall live by faith. It's not by evidences. It's not by signs or wonders. But by faith. The righteousness of God recognized. Ministers will will tell you you if you ask them that the majority of their pastoral problems will be solved if their people really understood this doctrine of justification by faith or the imputed righteousness of Christ in every congregation many members have doubts are they loved by God they don't feel that they love God they don't have the sense of peace that they desire are they really a Christian they, 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 they have an impure thought they seek, speak a harsh word they, they do an unkind deed and they, they look at those tainted works and thoughts and emotions and and wonder are they God's people and this doctrine in Romans is emphasizing that our focus is not so much to be on ourselves but it's to be on what God has done in Jesus Christ And in that moment, in that forensic, that legal, that that voice from heaven speaking down into our guilty state. Righteous, justified, in Christ, by faith. Antinomians take the very opposite position, don't they? They grasp justification by faith. Yes, God has declared me righteous. Yes, it's not about me. It's about God's work so I can do what I like. They fail to understand the connection of verse 17 to verse 16. That that, that faith comes as a result of the power of God coming into a sinner and transforming us and enabling us to believe. Not only is this outward declaration of righteousness, there is an inner transformation to desire righteousness and to honor this God who has loved us in his grace. Revealed. We talk, don't we? We talk about 
Kairos moments, or, or maybe you don't talk about Kairos moments, those moments which have defined you, those cataclysmic events in your life when the light dawned, or, or when some experience broke into you, your, your life, and, and you saw things in a new light, and it changed the direction of your life. And surely as we, we sit this evening, and as we, we ponder this, This has got to be the change in our experience and a change that we're never to forget. The God of heaven declaring us to be righteous. Imagine up the street appearing in court and in that court are all the transgressions against God that you've ever committed listed there on page after page and God the judge in the courthouse up the street summons you before him and he looks at you and he looks at these pages and then he looks at Christ and says to you righteous you're free to go how you would skip down those steps What a thrill. You would never forget that moment. And this is it. We've been to the courthouse. We've heard this sentence of God to us. To even small, insignificant you and me. You are righteous. In my sight. Grisha Machen on his deathbed wrote to the professor of theology in Westminster, John Murray, a little note. And the little note was this. Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. That active obedience which secured the righteousness of God, which God, when we believe, imputes to us the received righteousness of God by faith, not faith and works, not faith in the church, not just an intellectual assent to doctrine, but a trust in the saving God, a dependence, a reliance, solely, completely, wholly in God revealed and expressed in Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, who died for our sins and rose again. And as we exercise such faith, such saving faith, the righteousness of God is imputed to us. So do you have such faith? What a question for a Sabbath evening. Some of you might say, no. No, I don't. But come now. Come here. Believe now. Trust now. By faith. Only by faith. Always by faith. Just faith. Some of you might say, yes, I do have that faith. And that's tremendous. And thank God for the assurance, the strong assurance that you have such faith. But most of us will say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. My faith is weak. 
I wish it was stronger. But it's real. It's not the the degree of the faith. It's the object of the faith. The faith in Jesus Christ. And his grace. And his righteousness. Maybe you've been gardening, sending out a new, new landscape in this tremendous weather. Eh? <clears throat> Some of the things will take time. Eh? New flower bed here. <clears throat> I'm speaking randomly and with very little experience of this. Uh, pl- plants, bulbs uh, sown in, in the beds. And it will be a progressive work. But maybe, just maybe, you've gone down to the, the local garden centre and you, you purchased a mature tree. And you came home and just in a moment, in a flash, you planted that tree. There it was. No time at all. This mature, flowering tree of beauty and shade. The centerpiece of your garden. And that is justification in the Christian's life in a moment. In a flash, we are made righteous before God and it stands at the very center of our Christian living. The guilty declared righteous in the grace by the power, love, and redemption of our God and Savior. 